0: Thanks for downloading this podcast, which is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. This podcast was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2020. In this talk, Dr. Amanda Blake Davis of the University of Sheffield takes us on a flight through birds and embodiment in the poetry of Percy Bysshe Shelley and John Keats. In an understudied fragment of Shelley's, The Woodman and the Nightingale, also reveals Shelley's deeply felt affinity with Keats and his active agency as Keats's reader in the months before the younger poet's death. Newell Ford, following Neville Rogers' assertion that the poem is certainly a Keats allegory, suspects that The Woodman stands for, quote, the slashing reviewer of Keats's poems, slayer of Keats the Nightingale, end quote. For Rogers, the interposition between the realms of life and death in Adonais, quote, owes much to the Phaedo and the Republic, end quote, both of which Shelley read and translated from. But the Platonic shifts between death and life as illusory termini in Adonais are also figured in the Woodman and the Nightingale, where the Nightingale, like the unbodied joy of Shelley's Skylark, is imaged in terms that shift between the body and the immaterial soul. In this lecture, I would like to consider in particular the influence of the Phaedo upon the Woodman and the Nightingale, and Shelley's felt affinity with both Keats and Plato as fellow poets, where during Socrates' speech upon death and the soul's separation from the body, he describes himself in poetic terms as a fellow servant of the swans and sacred to the same divinity, before considering the source of the swan's song along with the nightingale's, as one not of sorrow, but of joy. In The Woodman and the Nightingale, Shelley's rough-hearted woodman's killing of the tall treen, the soul of whom was each a wood nymph, and his teresius-like silencing of the nightingale's song, never to return again, establishes a set of termini and binary positions, ranging from life and death, to body and soul, to sound and silence. But like the cloud of Shelley's eponymous poem, who rises like a child from the womb, like a ghost from the tomb, to build up and unbuild her airy habitation again and again, Shelley's reading and elusive writing of Keats allows for the absent poet's continued revival In the Phaedo, the living are generated from the dead, no less than the dead from the living. So, Socrates reasons, the souls of the dead must necessarily exist somewhere from whence they may again be generated. As much as Plato's textual dialogues ensure Socrates' unending revivification through the act of reading, Shelley's allusions to Keats revitalize and preserve the younger poet. In Adonais, Keats's poetic figuration transitions between states of death and sleep, and liminal positions in between, from being gone to lying as if in dewy sleep, to vacillating between sleeping and waking, living and dying, in stanzas 38 to 41. He lives, he wakes, tis death is dead, not he. If, quote, to read is to revivify words, revive an absent or vanished writer, end quote, as Susan Wolfson writes, then to allude is to take part in an absent writer's revivification. Shelley's invocation of Keats' immortal bird in this fragment reveals the branching, Bloomian pathways between their poems, where Shelley's description of one nightingale in an interfluous wood images illusion as a flowing between or through or a space aptly intersected by paths, to quote two of the possible definitions of interfluous given by C.D. Locock. In The Woodman and the Nightingale, Shelley's poet as Nightingale's song echoes and responds to the voices of others, anticipating Adonais's union of Shelley and Keats in A Piece of Art Worthy Both of Him and of Me. In an unfinished and unsent letter composed in November, 1820, and addressed to William Gifford, the editor of the Quarterly Review, Shelley attributes Keats' declining health of both body and mind to the effects produced by the Quarterly's scathing review of Endymion. Poor Keats was thrown into a dreadful state of mind by this review, Shelley writes, which I am persuaded was not written with any intention of producing the effect to which it has at least greatly contributed, of embittering his existence and inducing a disease from which there are now but faint hopes of his recovery. The first effects are described to me to have resembled insanity, and it was by assiduous watching that he was restrained from effecting purposes of suicide. The agony of his sufferings at length produced the rupture of a blood vessel in the lungs, and the usual process of consumption appears to have begun. He is coming to pay me a visit in Italy. A drawing of trees appears upon the letter. And while similar sketches populate Shelley's notebooks, these trees seem interconnected with the letter's focus upon Keats's troubled mind and successive bodily sufferings and Shelley's composition of the Woodman and the Nightingale in the coming weeks. Adopting and adapting Keats's Nightingale as a light-winged dryad of the trees, the focus upon the sweet bird of Shelley's fragment shifts to the sweet dryads whose souls are embodied by trees. Shelley's unsent letter visually embodies Keats as a light-winged dryad of the trees, attempting an epistolary defense and rescue of the wounded poet. Keats never did visit Shelley in Italy, But Shelley, in anticipating Keats's arrival, assumed the self-ordained position of the younger poet's mentor. Particularly after reading Hyperion, Shelley's high estimation of Keats's poetry is coupled with a desire to cultivate the younger poet's instinctive Platonism. Anxiously awaiting for Keats to accept his offer and join him in Italy, Shelley writes in October 1820, I intend to be the physician both of his body and his soul to keep the one warm and to teach the other Greek and Spanish, where Greek and Spanish stand in for Plato and Calderon. In desiring to tend to the younger poet, Shelley assumes the ideal Apollonian role of poet exalted by Keats in the fall of Hyperion as physician to all men. Shelley's epistolary and poetic allusions to Keats suggest a sensing of the younger poet's developing interest in Plato. Where the Phaedo's vacillations between body and soul, and approximation of death to sleep, seem subtly present through a direct or indirect Platonism in his Ode to a Nightingale. The speaker's final lingering questions, was it a vision or a waking dream, fled is that music, do I wake or sleep, echo Wordsworth's obstinate questionings and his own shades of the Phaedo in the Immortality Ode. Where our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The eponymous bird of Keats's ode is at once the flesh and feathered songbird perched outside of Keats's Hampstead home, even as it remains a disembodied and exalted voice. In his ode, Keats's vacillations between the ideal and the actual are suggestive of a subtle Platonism, where, like Plato, Keith D. White writes, quote, "Keats perceives the ideal world." only with the aid of the physical world," end quote. Similarly, Shelley glides between the ethereal and the material with a combination of natural and direct Platonism. Between the composition of the Woodman and the Nightingale and Adenaeus, Shelley transports Keats's Nightingale into his defense of poetry, where a poet is a nightingale who sits in darkness and sings to cheer its own solitude with sweet sounds. His auditors are as men entranced by the melody of an unseen musician, who feel that they are moved and softened, yet know not whence or why. Shelley's Nightingale, who sings to cheer its own solitude, invokes Keats's solitary songbird, but the defense also spotlights the presence of the nightingale's entranced auditors. The nightingale, like Shelley's platonic chain of poets descending through the minds of many men, draws attention to the doubled presence of listener and speaker, or reader and poet, where in The Woodman and the Nightingale, the Woodman auditor's lack of sympathy silences the Keatsian Nightingale's poetic utterance. Through allusion and by emphasizing his own position as sympathetic reader, Shelley revives Keats's unkindled melodies through his Nightingale that sings out of commiseration rather than solitude and sorrow. For Socrates, harmony is something invisible and incorporeal, all beautiful and divine, in a well-modulated lyre, but the lyre and its cords are bodies and of a corporeal nature, that they are composites and terrestrial, and allied to that which is mortal. Shelley weaves Socrates' metaphor into his defence, where there is a principle within the human being, and perhaps within all sentient beings, which acts otherwise than in the lyre, and produces not melody alone, but harmony. In The Woodman and the Nightingale, this harmony becomes love, or the empathic projection of self into other, as in Shelley's prose poem On Love. Through acts of illusion, Shelley extends Socrates' metaphor upon body and soul to the harmonious relationship between poet and reader and poet as reader. Through allusion to Keats's Ode to a Nightingale, Shelley invokes a pantheon of poets, harmonizing the melodies of nightingales from Plato, Homer, and Sophocles to Shakespeare, Dante, and Milton, and anticipating the fraternity of epic poets in Adonais, where Keats is ranked third among the sons of light. The singing of Shelley's happy nightingale echoes the gleeful song of Keats's bird, being too happy in thine happiness, itself responsive to the merry nightingale of Coleridge's own nightingale recalling that the first topics of conversation noted by Keats in his epistolary recollection of his meeting with Coleridge upon Hampstead Heath were Nightingale's Poetry on Poetical Sensation. Shelley and Keats's responses to Coleridge's Convivial Nightingale in The Woodman and the Nightingale, and Ode to a Nightingale, bespeak a sense of similitude where the poets quote, answer and provoke each other's songs, to quote from Coleridge's poem through illusion, creating a harmony of calls and responses. Shelley produces this dialogue within his poem, where he assumes the double position of entranced auditor and singing poet. Paradoxically, Christopher Ricks writes of Keats, quote, it is often by courtesy of another with the aid of illusion that a poet becomes himself, end quote. And the fullness of Shelley's song is realized through his voicing of others. In The Woodman and the Nightingale, Shelley blends Keats's ode in the voice of his songbird, being too happy in thine happiness, while also foregrounding Wordsworth's shared influence. The singing of that happy nightingale was interfused upon the silentness, the folded roses and the violets pale. Wordsworth's sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused in Tintern Abbey, is combined with Keats's fast fading violets and coming musk rose, as Shelley's Nightingale voices and harmonizes poetic influence. The mortal Keats may be like the song of Shelley's Nightingale, never to return again, but is soon to be immortalized in Adonais, as Shelley's Nightingale's metaphorical transference into one serene and unapproached star looks towards the soul of Adonais like a star. Shelley's elegy revitalizes Keats through the act of memorializing him, where the presence of the poet as Nightingale's auditors ensures the deceased poet's unending revival through the act of listening. Keats's active agency as a listener spurs forth his ode's creation. The sensual intermixing of pleasure and pain that opens Keats's ode underscores quote, the thrilling sense of kinship and self-punishing recognition of inadequacy, end quote, that Fiona Stafford identifies as vacillating in poetic tributes to the Nightingale. There is a doubled sense of competitiveness and kinship that is intrinsic to the Nightingale's song. And the same sense underlies Shelley and Keats's complicated intertextual and interpersonal relationship with Beth Lau suggesting that, quote, Keats may on some level have felt engaged in a race with Shelley, not just during the composition of Endymion, but to the end of his life. End quote. Competition and imitation spur the bird's musicality in Pliny the Elder's account, where younger birds practice singing and are given verses to imitate. And in the competitive singing contests of their maturity, the defeated bird often dies, her breath failing with her song. But in Adenaeus, Shelley's Nightingale sings not out of competition, but out of commiseration. And in The Woodman and the Nightingale, Shelley revisits Keats's melodious plot, sharing in the younger poet's pain, where his imitation of Keats's ode emphasizes the poet's underpinning affinity. The negatively capable Keats, being too happy in thine happiness, imagines himself as taking part in the existence of the light winged dryad of the trees recalling his epistolary admission that, if a sparrow come before my window, I take part in its existence and pick about the gravel. And Shelley similarly strives to take part in Keats's existence through love's gentle dryads in The Woodman and the Nightingale. In Adenaeus, Shelley's self-elegizing evidences his sympathy for Keats. Michael O'Neill considers Shelley's intimate allusivity to Keats in his preface to Adenaeus, where there is, quote, A graceful nod towards stanza six of Ode to a Nightingale, in the lines, The cemetery is an open space among the ruins, covered in winter with violets and daisies. It might make one in love with death to think that one should be buried in so sweet a place." O'Neill, lighting upon Keats's sense of being half in love with easeful death, notes how the, survive, quote, the surviving poet imagines himself wholly in love with death, where the terror of death is softened, though not sentimentalized, as Shelley, as in a Socratic thought experiment, thinks of himself buried in so sweet a place, quote. Shelley's echoing of Keats's ode emphasizes the empathic experience that is central to Shelley's conception of love as a going out of our own nature And an identification of ourselves with the beautiful which exists in thought, action, or person, not our own." Shelley was, quote, one of the major exemplars of Keats's ideal of negative capability, O'Neill writes, and Shelley's elusive transformation of Keats's light-winged dryad into Love's gentle dryads is suggestive of the older poet's empathic identification with Keats. Quote, Allusion depends upon apprehending a newly true combination of similitude and dissimilitude, end quote. Christopher Ricks writes, and Adonais performs this revitalizing combination in verse, as Shelley interfuses Keats's spirit with his own. Material substance forms from shadows numberless in Keats's ode, as the poet intermixes the shaded grove of pastoral tradition with the shade of easeful death. The dialectical movements from the material to the eternal and Socrates' sleep-like death in the Phaedo also seem present in Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. Although Keats's sense as though of hemlock I had drunk echoes Marlowe's translation of Ovid's Amores, where hemlock is palliative rather than lethal, the sixth stanza's invocation of easeful death seems evocative of Socrates' slow loss of bodily sensation after drinking the hemlock. The sixth stanza's balanced division between the speaker's meditations upon death and attention to the nightingale's ecstatic song also seem to invoke Plato's swans belonging to Apollo, who, when they perceive that it is necessary for them to die, sing not only as usual, but then more than ever, rejoicing that they are about to depart to that deity in whose service they are engaged. It is likely that Socrates's consideration of himself as a fellow-servant of the swans, and sacred to the same divinity, would have struck a chord with Keats, budding patiently under the eye of Apollo. Humans, fearing death, misinterpret the swan's song as a lamentation, as they do with the nightingale. But neither the nightingale, nor the swallow, nor the lapwing, sing through sorrow, nor yet the swan, Socrates says. I shall not be afflicted at dying, Socrates reassures his interlocutors, but shall entertain a good hope that something remains for the dead." Even as Keats's plantative anthem fades, his expression of Wordsworthian influence in the ode's final lines demonstrates the power of illusion to harmonize mind with mind, renewing and immortalizing the poet's shared power. Shelley shares in this harmony through his interfusion with Keats and Adonais, where, like Phaedo's description of Socrates' final moments, as filled with a certain wonderful passion and an unusual mixture of pleasure and grief, both tears and laughter, the elegy turns from inciting grief to call for the mourners, to turn all thy do to splendor, to transform tears into smiling light. Before composing The Woodman and the Nightingale, Shelley was already in conversation with Keats's Nightingale through another poetical bird. Keats, I hope, is going to show himself a great poet, like the sun, to burst through the clouds, which, though dyed in the finest colors of the air, obscured his rising," Shelley writes in May 1820, where his envisioning of Keats anticipates his own immortal bird, the Skylark. In the golden lightning of the sunken sun, o'er which clouds are brightening, thou dost float and run, like an unbodied joy whose race is just begun. The unbodied joy of Shelley's Skylark recalls Socrates' swan song and the invisible souls freed flight from their bodily confines, chiming in Shelley's letter with Keats casting off of the cold systems that bind him and obscure his rising. Quote, one would like to think that Keats at least heard once heard or read this romantic songbird poem so often linked with his own ode to a nightingale, end quote, Beth Lau writes, positing that Keats may have heard Shelley's poem from Lee Hunt, whose appreciation of the Skylark's melodious tones touches upon the privileging of song over sight. One gets the stanzas by heart unawares and repeats them like snatches of old tunes, Hunt writes. Shelley's Skylark's hymns religiously respond to Keats's Nightingale's high requiem. Like a poet hidden in the light of thought, singing hymns unbidden till the world is wrought to sympathy with hopes and fears it heeded not. Shelley's Skylark, like a poet hidden, anticipates the Keatsian Nightingale of the defense, the unseen musician who, through its melody, compels the sympathy of its auditors. The receptivity of Shelley's poem reflects this doubled state of speaker and listener, or poet and reader, where the poem's final line, I am listening now, echoes Keats's darkling, I listen. Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know, such harmonious madness from my lips would flow, the world would listen then, as I am listening now. There are platonic implications to this harmonious madness from Zachary Leder and Michael O'Neill's suggestion that Shelley takes this view of the poet from the Phaedrus to the divinely inspired madness of the poet in the *Ion*, where poetry harmonizes mind with mind. Shelley, Michael O'Neill affirms, is, quote, aware both that harmony involves a necessary awareness of the possibility of discord and a commitment to the imagination," end quote. Shelley's allusivity allows him to hold the double position of poet and reader, where his allusions to Keats form and preserve a sense of harmony between body and soul, or self and other, reviving and exalting the deceased poet's unkindled melodies. Shelley elusively harmonizes mind with mind within his works, indebted to Plato's dialogues, where the poet as Nightingale is both Singer and Entranced Auditor. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers.